Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Like many people, I love being out on the water. However, it's really hard to actually get a trip where you're spending time on the water outside of cruise ships, which, if, if we're honest, isn't really like being on the water. I'm so excited to talk today with, uh, with Thomas Weber. Uh, he has a wonderful YouTube series about his trip boating from the Baltic Sea to the Mediterranean. And what makes it really spectacular, in my opinion, is it's on a 17-foot boat. So this is just like a little, you know, a tiny boat, and he's just traveling all throughout Europe. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Hello. I, I'll admit I'm a fan. I watch, I've watched all your videos on, uh, on YouTube and I just think this is a genius way to travel. You have something I hadn't even thought of when, you know, when I watched it, I realized it's really intuitive. But for you, how did you get the idea to boat from the Baltic Sea down to the Mediterranean on a 17-foot boat? Well, this was uh, last year and uh, it was just after Corona and uh, I, I must tell also we actually have a 36-foot sailboat. And, but doing it in the sailboat would make everything very complicated because it takes around between one and a half to three months to go on uh, the rivers and canals in Europe, all the way through Europe. And that would mean uh, I, I have a life with a full calendar, mortgage I need to pay, children in school. So going there with my sailboat, maybe one and a half, three months, and then return and sell the sailboat home again one and a half, three months. That would be half a year off. Who would pay my mortgage during the time? Who would uh, uh, take care of the children and my wife and uh, everything? So I was thinking hard and long about this and thinking that if we do this in a little boat, you know, it's like children, small children, small problems. And it's (laughs) the exact same thing with boats, small boats, small problems. So in a little boat I bought just for this, I bought it for uh, 3,000 euros. I bought it just for this trip. I promised my wife to sell it again afterwards. But, uh, well, I still have it (laughs) because this was so much fun to do. And your little boat, it's just like like in Canada, it'd just be like a boat I'd see on the lake with like a motor in the back. It's it's just like a regular motorboat, just not not, not a fast one, but just like a little putt-putt putting around boat. Well, <laughs> it, it actually is very fast. It can go 30 knots. Oh, wow. Which is, and that's very usable on when you go on canals where the speed limit is, well, normally it's maybe five knots or something. <laughs> so, uh, so, and I think that's also why that people, when, when I started telling people I wanted to do this, people were shaking their heads and saying, you will never succeed in that. That old engine, it will never succeed. And in that little boat, it's not possible. Well, the last idiot is not born yet, people told me. <laughs> <laughs> which is the title for your YouTube series. Exactly. So you have a background, obviously, in sailing. Was Do you also, are you comfortable in these little smaller boats and, you know, going through rivers and canals in, in a smaller boat like this? Well, it was my first time driving a boat with an outboard engine. So uh, I became, what's it called, good with this. But in the beginning, I had no idea what I, well, more or less no idea what I was doing. Else that 
I, I could see that the engine was in a good condition, and I could see that the boat, the boat, well, it was orange, but besides that, it was quite a good boat. Uh, well, during the trip, I realized I maybe should have done some more uh, preparations, but well, I m- managed anyway. So, so, in terms of like the actual like technical skill of like being a small boat on these canals and rivers. Is it hard to learn the rules of the water or to, to like I've driven a boat before like that and it's fairly easy to, to drive the boat, but are there lots of rules in these canals you have to learn or is that pretty easy? Well, if you have a driver's license for car, it's fairly easy. You need to have a certificate called a Sevni. Uh, it will take you a few hours in an online course uh, to, to take it. It's very easy to take it. So, so you need that uh, license. You know, you went from the Baltic to the Mediterranean. Is that a standard route that, you know, people know, or were you pouring over maps trying to figure out how to make this journey? Well, it's more or less a standard route because it's it's quite common to do that, but of course in bigger boats. So were you kind of following a route like what these river cruises would follow? Is it a similar route to, to that? Uh, yes and no, uh, because when we went on some of the big rivers, like the Rhine and the Rhone and the Moselle River, we saw these uh, cruise ships, but sometimes we also went on these very small French uh, picturesque canals, and there, there are not there are not any cruise ships. So what is an average day on your boat, on the river? This is one thing when I was watching your videos, I could never tell. Is it just, you know, motoring for eight hours straight, or is it, you know, taking lots of breaks? The great thing about going on rivers and canals, uh, well, if you sail out in the ocean, you have to be sailing all the time. You cannot just stop and uh, go and grab a beer or a breakfast or something. You have to be continue sailing all, all the time. But the good thing about inland waterways is that you can almost always stop. Uh, our, our plan was never to go and see a lot of museums or churches or uh, stuff like that. Our, our main goal from the beginning was to, to be on the water and to get whatever kind of experiences we would get on the water. So uh, we started in the morning eating breakfast uh, in the boat. And if we saw something interesting on, on, on our way, we would just uh, pull the handbrake go into the side and uh, maybe grab a coffee or talk with somebody or look at something or do some shopping or uh, so so we stopped a lot during the day but if we didn't do it to look at the museums or something like that like how much time would you actually be like sailing during the day was it just a few hours or would it be like I'm, i'm just trying to trying to think of you know the level of effort versus the relaxation because i think a lot of people they look at oh it'd be great to spend you know half your day in a small village enjoying great food or a beer or a coffee but but is that the reality of these types of trips it could be but uh, i had an agreement with my wife this actually started also by thinking that being away from home for 2 weeks that would never be a problem so when I was thinking more about this, then maybe I could be away from home like three times two weeks. So uh, so I did this in uh, in, in stages. So uh, so I had these six weeks. I could extend it if it was not enough time. But my agreement with my wife was that I had these three times two uh, weeks to do it, and with my work also. Uh, so so uh, it was fairly starting in the morning and stopping in. in 
in the night. Uh, and if we had more time, of course, we could have stopped. I mean, we were sailing every day. And we had like, uh, it was 31 days of uh, sailing. So actually, we didn't spend all the six weeks of uh, holiday I had for this. If we should have stopped, uh, maybe just going a few hours every day or stopping a few days in each town, which would have been lovely because we passed so many wonderful uh, towns. And I don't know how accustomed you are with all the rivers and canals in Europe, but I mean, they are everywhere. And normally I say that uh, that you can go to whatever big city in Europe as you want by boat, but of course you can't. But I mean, you can go, you can go to Berlin, you can go to Paris, you can go to uh, Maastricht, you can go to Lyon. There's like a lot of big cities and small towns also you can go to. Yeah, like that, that's when I was watching. I, you know, I never thought of the idea of like exploring uh, Europe by boat. You kind of think of oh, you, you rent a car, or you go on train. But it seemed like such a a nice way to explore these cities. You just, you know, you just sail up into into the center of the city. Um, that leads to my next question. In terms of mooring, obviously, when you're in the small villages or the parts of you know the rivers where there's not you know not many people, it's probably easy to find a place to to moor the boat. But in bigger cities, did it is it challenging to find a place to moor the boat? It was never challenging to find a place to moor the boat. I mean, there's places everywhere and uh, you can moor in. Uh, actually, also, there's a lot of free harbors you can moor in. Uh, the economy in this trip has spent not a lot of money doing this. And that's like, but, but our main, what we say, problem was that we sailed in such a small boat. So we didn't have any toilet aboard. We didn't have any showers or anything uh, so um, so we wanted to moor in uh, marinas so or somewhere where, where we had these uh, f- facilities so of course that put a bit more demand to our trip if we had been sailing in a bigger boat uh, where we would have a toilet aboard for instance uh, we could have moored more like just in the countryside or in uh, um, yeah so in, in hindsight do you wish you'd had just a slightly bigger boat so you could have had a, a toilet on there? Or was that the right size boat for your type of adventure? I think this was the right size. Uh, it, it was the right size for my type of uh, adventure. Uh, and, and it's funny because a lot of people were passing us. Of course, this little orange boat, that it, it, it <laughs> gave us a lot of attention. We met a lot of people. And some people were on the quay or on the pontoon and looking at the boat and asking us, are you sleeping in that one? Like people expect that if you go in a boat and you go on a longer trip, they expect you need to have like a 50 foot boat or something. They don't expect you can do it in a 17 foot boat. But I mean, if we had been hiking in the mountains, then maybe we would carrying all our stuff in a backpack. And then maybe we would have a little tiny tent instead. And if we were hiking in the mountains, nobody would stop looking at the tent and saying, are you sleeping in that little tent? Everybody would say, oh, that's nice, this sleeping in that tent. I mean, but when it comes to boat, there's an expectation that you need to have a really, really big boat. And really, this little boat has a lot more comfort than sleeping in a tent, even though it's a small boat. Now, now actually, I'm interested... I think I know where you guys slept in, in that you had like the canopy that came over. And did you just sleep on the like the chairs on the kind of or the, the cushions on the side in the back of the boat? 
No, there's actually uh, in the front of the boat. There's actually well, I call it the owner's cabin, <laughs> but uh, it's it's not really a cabin, but but there's like two beds in there, uh, and we sleep like princes in there, <laughs> really. And uh, the crew I had with me, we were two aboard uh, on the last stretch. Unfortunately, I, I was by myself, but else. And and my my friend, my cousin, and my son who joined me, they also said, "Wow, we slept so good in this boat." So I mean, but of course, sleeping you need a bed of a certain size. I mean, that bed will not be much more comfortable or bigger if the if the boat is bigger, right? <laughs> it will just be more space around it. So yes, so we slept in the front, and uh, then in in the aft there was also like two beds. So. When this boat was built in the 70s in Finland, uh, I think they expected that this would be a good size. A 17-foot boat, a 5-meter boat would be a good size for a family of four, but, well, I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know at the start it seemed like you, you talked a little bit about uh, there was a bit of a time pressure. Early on in your trip, you had some some terrible weather, and you were sailing in the rain. I thought, oh... This looks horrible. Like, I, I just thought, oh, like, you know, I know cycling in the rain sucks, backpacking in the rain sucks. I thought, oh, this isn't very nice. But then as time went on, you decided to, to just chill out. You know, if it's pouring rain, you would just stay put. Was that because you realized you were making better progress and you didn't have to rush against the clock? It was actually because, like you said, it was awful sailing in the rain because it is a very small boat and with the canopy up, well, we could sail in the rain, but it was hard to see anything. It was a lot of moist. And if we took it down, it would rain into the whole boat. Everything would be wet. It was awful. So we decided to, when it's raining, we're not sailing. We will uh, we will be reading. We'll be drinking coffee. We'll be resting. And uh, normally, actually, it would be raining for maybe two hours or something. And then the weather would be nice again. So instead of just struggling against the rain and the weather like you say we just we just stayed put and uh, and waited for better weather you know watching the videos one thing I, I thought to myself is it's a really nice way to have a, a holiday with people you know you did it with a friend your your sister I think and and your son to have a holiday where you actually are kind of present and can connect with them. It's a bit like a backpacking trip where there's not much else other than, you know, you're walking and talking and you're setting up camp and, you know, it's a really like a high, a high engagement type of trip. But is that what it is when you're in the boat? Is it a case where you're, you know, you have this really great chats with, you know, people you care about? It is. And we see that with our children also. As I told earlier, we have a sailboat also and our children are more or less they grew up on this sailboat, we could say, when uh, when our son was nine months old and uh, my daughter was uh, four years old. We also sailed one year on a sabbatical to the Caribbean, uh, to the Mediterranean. And that time we had with our children where they could see us all the time, that really made something special for the family. In the beginning, as parents, I mean, there are certain subjects you don't want to hear, uh, you, you don't want your children to hear that you're talking about. That could be economy, that could be some somebody in, in uh, a dear friend being sick or something like that. But we realized that if we tried to hide this for our children, they would hear maybe fragments of it. And that actually made them more scared than if we just talked openly with them 
about the things that scare us, the things that make us happy, this, also all these deeper things. And uh, that actually means that even today, where our uh, children are, are big, uh, my son, which uh, was also part, part of this trip uh, now, uh, he's 15, and we still talk openly about these things. We know a lot more about our children, and they tell us a lot of stuff that other children don't tell their parents. And that's surely that's because we had the chance to be so close with them when they were little, not just sending them to kindergarten, not just going to work, but really being with our children. Yeah, it's funny. My kids are, are, are younger than, than your son, but I, I feel, I, I think to myself often when we're, you know, backpacking or camping, Outside of those experiences, there's not a lot of time where you spend with your kids without distraction. And, you know, I think those are the moments that, you know, build us as a family because, you know, spending the day in the tent because it's pouring, playing, you know, Connect Four or Go Fish or whatever game we're playing, that's how we're we're building our bonds as a family. But it's really hard in our modern lifestyle. We don't have time to really have those experiences anymore because the kids would rather watch a video on Netflix or would rather play a video game. But it's only when you're kind of in nature can you can you kind of get get away from those kind of modern conveniences. I think you got right on to the point there, which is important because in in normal uh, everyday life we go to work in the morning our children goes to school they meet with their friends if we're lucky the whole family meets for dinner we talk for half an hour and then everybody are having their own projects and that means that we are not really part of each other's lives anymore in that way so really going on camping or hiking or sailing where we do the same thing in life. And and I mean, this, I think this is more or less the same with friends also. I mean, in, in doing something with other people other than just having dinner or having a coffee, that really is, uh, well, if it was a job, you would say team building. But I mean, it, it really it grows the family, grows the friendship, it grows, uh, uh, yeah, human relations. It actually is. It is. It is classic team building. I hadn't thought of that. But you know, when you, when you're in a company, everyone goes out and does something in a day, so you can kind of have this time together without distraction. And uh, that that's what it is with a family. It's it's just team building. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more about this uh, this trip you did. You spent a year in the Caribbean. You've written a book, Shut Up and Travel. What advice can you give to people that that want to you know take a sabbatical or want to go and do something different? And they have a family, they have a job, you know, I hear so many people, they struggle with with that challenge of, you know, they end up going down to Mexico for a week, or they go to Europe for two weeks. And that's not the same as, you know, three months or a year, where you really have that that time away as a family. No, it's not. And we, we felt that also on our longer trips that the the first weeks, maybe the first months, it was it, it was like a holiday. And it was after that, it became like an everyday life to travel. Um, but I think the most important is that that all of us, we have some problems right now that means that we cannot do it. It could be economy. It could be that we think the children are too small. Uh, it could be uh, our job. I mean, there's always something preventing us from doing that. But it will not be better in five years. Because, I mean, in five years, maybe the children are too big. Maybe we don't have a job in five years. Or maybe we have another job, which makes it even more complicated. I mean, there's never a good time for doing this. And waiting for the good time doing it, it will never show up. You have to make the time. 
and and the most important uh, the most important tip for doing this that's just setting a date so making a reasonably realistic date saying for instance that uh, in two years we want to make a circumnavigation or in two years we want to take half a year uh, uh, going on a car trip or something like that and because and uh, maybe even make it even more uh, detailed saying that the 1st of July 2024 uh, at 12 noon we will go on this trip because if you have a date you have something common to work against that will solve all the problems it's just like going to school you re- remember you had some assignment it was uh, until next week but it was always the last day you fixed the assignment and you always always you you could hand in this uh, a- assignment right in some way no matter how stressed you were you succeeded and you do succeed when you have a realistic deadline i love that rule just just set a date it's you know, it's up my wife and I talk all the time. And, and actually what you're saying is, you know, there's always a reason. And, you know, a few years ago, pre-pandemic that we tried it, the kids were too young. It was, you know, we we spent two months and it was really, really tough. And then now we're worried, oh, in a few years, the kids will be in middle school or high school. And then, then you can't take a year off. And you're right. There's always a reason why you can't do it. But if you just say, okay, in, in one year, or 15 months or 18 months, then you can start working back to get in that, uh, in that, in that point. Um, I love I love that rule. So simple, but it, it is it is a great one. The, the big question people always ask me though is like, how do people navigate their jobs? And so, do you have any advice for people that have a job? You know, it's easier now with remote work, but it still is hard. You know, you go to travel the world, but if the parents are working forty hours a week, it's really tough for the kids to just you know be in an Airbnb, be in a sailboat. So, how did you how did you navigate that aspect? Well, uh, the first time when we sailed in the Mediterranean, uh, when the children were really small, uh, I worked. I had uh, I had my own IT consultant company, and I worked a few days a week, and that was actually quite tough working while traveling because uh, we uh, normally we would have to plan the sailing of the weather, of the people we meet, of what we want. But now we also had to plan of. Uh, uh, is there internet in the place you want to go to? Uh, do I have any deadline I need to fix before we can go? So the so the second time when we went to the Caribbean, uh, I quit my job and my wife did the same. So we didn't work while sailing. And of course, uh, that that's a much uh, nicer thing to do. <laughs> but, uh, but of course, that means you need to have some saved uh, money also. Actually, those three times I have quit a job to to travel for a longer time and coming back uh, and uh, looking for a new job, I have always got a job which was much better than the previous one. Even though I thought this is the dream job, I would it would be impossible to get a better job. I got it every time, and there are several reasons for this. And uh, some people think that if they haven't had a job for maybe a year or something. Uh, for instance, because they're traveling, they think that oh, we need to hide this fact in the CV that we've not been working. No, if it's because you've been traveling, you should really brag about that I've not been working for a year because I've been traveling, because you learn so much from traveling. I mean, doing a sailing to the Caribbean and back for one year, you learn a lot of, for instance, about project management, because it's not always that easy. You learn a lot about when you cross an ocean, you, you learn a lot about cooperation, 
I mean, which company doesn't want to employ somebody who's good at cooperation with other people? You know, you learn to be flexible. You learn something about the other cultures. You learn something about languages. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, and you should really use this stuff when uh, when you apply for a new job and say, "I did this. I learned this, uh, which I can use in the job I am applying to now." So. That's a lot, uh, and, and and just the obvious thing, probably it would be like this, that if you come to the interview, probably the guy sitting on the other, or the, ga- the guy, the girl, would probably, sit, sitting on the other side of the desk, would probably be very envy that you did this, and she or he didn't. So already there, you will get a big advantage in front of the other people applying for that job. You know, I, I couldn't agree with that more. In fact, you know, I've learned so much from my travels in the world. I think one thing is things always go wrong. If you plan for the worst case, everything's always, you know, always going to be better. And I think I've learned how to always like, what's the worst case scenario? And then always just being happy with, you know, what you get because it, was, it wasn't it was that worst case scenario. There are some employers who don't like people that take these long, you know, these long breaks. But I think it's then good just to like put it on the table, like, you know, if, if an employer doesn't want you to go explore the world or have this curiosity, it's probably not going to be a good fit in that company anyway. So I, I love the way you, you you reframe this. And then when I hire people, I often look for people who have done like interesting voyages because usually they have interesting stories and they have this kind of a more diverse skill set. So uh, uh, I, I I love that 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 point of, of, of how to frame it. Let's let's come back to to this trip because your trip, you know, from the Baltic to the Mediterranean is just such an interesting way to see Europe. One of my questions, so as someone who knows nothing about boats, how would I, like somebody like myself, go and buy a boat? Could I could I show up somewhere in, you know, on the Baltic Sea and find a, a serviceable boat for 3,000 euros? Or did, did you know enough about boats that you could tell, oh, these ones are junk and this one's good? Yeah, I, I, I would say so. I think I was a bit lucky to find just this boat. Uh, I was actually looking for cheaper boats, but sometimes it's a good idea just paying a little bit more and then get a boat which is in a better condition than the one which is cheaper, because it could be expensive fixing boats which are not in a good condition. So I, I would say if you don't have the knowledge to buy a boat, I think you should team up with a friend or someone to help you uh, buying it, yes. But it is 3,000 euros like the normal price or... Like, should people budget 5,000 euros or 10,000 euros to get, you know, if they know nothing, just to find, you know, a real sturdy boat that uh, is maybe newer or maybe has a newer engine or something like that? The interesting thing is that uh, these kind of small boats sell for very, very little money. You could, in Scandinavia, you could get a boat, a sailboat, a small sailboat for maybe 1,000 euros. Because people don't want this kind of small boats, they want bigger boats. If you look at the uh, in, in the classifieds, you would see that there's a lot of small and cheap boats. Wow, wow! And then, and then, when you got to the Mediterranean, what did you do with your boat? Like, I, I, I recall you had the car there to bring it back. But is that what you did, or like, could could people just sell their boat in the Mediterranean? Is there a market for it? Do you think? Probably they could. Uh, but the thing is that when 
I live in Sweden, so having a boat in France and sailing it in France, I thought that would be a real a bit complicated. So my plan for the beginning was to then to drive down to France uh, with a boat trailer and then put the boat on a trailer and then drive it back again. Uh, and then the idea was to sell it, but uh, well, actually I went on a new trip in this boat this year and I plan to bring my wife to Paris next year and I have some wild and crazy ideas with this boat also, which I want to. So uh, so actually I'm not selling it, even <laughs> though I promised my wife to do it. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it sounds like you found a great little boat for, for what you need. It's such an easy way to get adventure. Because if we should do this in a bigger boat, and it, it, it's not that I don't have money. It, it's not that I'm rich neither. But if you do it in, in a small boat, everything is so much easier. Everything. I mean, just, just the time that I could do this in total six weeks instead of do it in maybe three, four, five months. I mean... I think that just proves my point. Uh, and, and you mentioned earlier, it was it's an economical way to travel. And so do you have an idea how much you spent for this entire trip from the Baltic to the Mediterranean? Yes, it is surprisingly cheap to cruise the uh, waterways of uh, Europe. And uh, I can tell that, uh, well, we used a lot of petrol. We used uh, 876 liters of petrol. And um, that is actually a lot of more money today than, than it was when I did this trip. <laughs> but it actually, if you compare that I had six weeks of holiday spending like, uh, was it 1,400 euros on petrol? I mean, for a six-week holiday on the same amount of money, we couldn't even go skiing for one week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the marina fees, it was 100 euros, more or less. I mean, 100 euros, that's not like... Uh, I don't even think you could get a hotel for one night in France for this price. So it's a really low fee for going on the canals in France. Not in, uh, not in Belgium, not in Germany, uh, but in France. And we spent like 75 euros for that. So in total... I think I bought the boat for 3,000 euros. I had the costs for maybe 2,000 euros. I mean, but I could sell the boat again. So, and I think that's surprisingly cheap. It's also surprisingly cheap to go out eating in Germany. It, it's more expensive in France, but in Germany, it's surprisingly cheap. Uh, of course, we didn't go to all the expensive restaurants. And of course, we cooked in the boat a lot also. But all in all, this was a very cheap trip. And it was not because we we tried to make it cheap. Uh, cheap. It just ended up like that. That that's incredible. It's almost you know buying your groceries to cook on the boat or going out to eat. It's probably similar to what you'd spend at home, although probably it's cheaper than than Scandinavia. And so really, you got six week holiday for fourteen hundred euros of petrol, another couple hundred euros for marina and canal fees, and the boat. You know, you could have sold it and got your money back, or you kept it. So it's like two hundred and. 25 euros a week for two people like it like the cheapest holiday and you're you know on the rivers floating through you know big city sea and sites that just a river cruise in one of those cities probably would have cost the equivalent of you know one week of, of the spend it's kind of incredible exactly you know thomas this has been incredible to hear your story and to just be inspired by you promoting this idea of like living this authentic travel travel life if, if people are listening 
and they're thinking, oh, sh- sh- should I do this? What's your parting word to people who, you know, who, who maybe want to do a trip like this? Oh, it's so easy to say, just do it. <laughs> but <laughs> but that will probably be too easy. You could also do ocean cruising. But actually, it's not as flexible and cheap as uh, this is. The great thing about when I did this was that uh, I did it in three stages, meaning that I went away for two weeks, then I went home working, spending time with the family uh, for some weeks, and then I went back, continued the trip, and then I went home again. And that made all of it uh, much easier. And, And I don't think I could do that if I did ocean cruising. And also... There's something really interesting about going on a river. It's like it's like uh, it's like Tom Sawyer. Yeah, it's like a Huckleberry <laughs> Finn. It's like a Pippi uh, Longstocking. I mean, all of these people did fantastic adventures on rivers, right? It's um, and it's I think it's because you know, like it's it's winding down the landscape, and you can only see until the next corner. So you have all the time. You have this feeling wonder what's behind the next corner so you feel like an adventurer you feel like uh, you are in white spots on the map or something like that because all the time i just need to go and pass the next corner to see what's there every few minutes it's a totally different different trip because there might be a town there might be you know this beautiful beautiful view it's been great to have you on the podcast thank you very much for coming on thomas thanks a lot it was great fun thanks And if people want to learn more about this journey or just find out about other journeys, uh, Thomas has a great uh, YouTube channel. It's uh, Thomas Weber, V-E-B-E-R. He also has a website, uh, thomasweber.dk. I'll put both of these in the show notes. And uh, actually, actually, I I have English sites also. So (laughs) what's what's the English site? This is the one I just translated all from Danish. Ah, So so the English site is uh, thomasweber.com. And actually, I renamed the YouTube channel to the last I- the last idiot is not born yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll put I'll put those in the um, in the show notes. If you're having a uh, a snowy day like we are here in Western Canada, and you just want to curl up and and watch a really fun fun video, I really urge you to watch these uh, uh, the the twenty videos going to the Mediterranean. Uh, And with that, uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.